Hey, we're glad that everyone has had the opportunity to see these works of art by the undergraduates who have produced maps of the British Empire. Some people have been talking on a about a few uh, curious features of them. Uh, the Argentines and perhaps even some of the British would be a little bit surprised to see Argentina painted red. Uh, but there is a reason for that, and that is because in one of the books uh, we discuss uh, Argentina as part of the informal empire. Uh, we will, this is a uh, discussion that Paul Woodruff will chair. Uh, I want to uh, introduce Robert Prentice and Steve Sonnenberg. Uh, just to get the discussion going, Paul, since you're the chairman, I will say, while Paul is finding his way back up here, I'll say a word about the, uh, the problem of plagiarism, uh, just to get us started. Uh, I've always been impressed with the Oxford Don, who listens very attentively to the essay being written by a student. After the student finished the essay, the Oxford Don said, that is a very impressive, well-reasoned, and informative essay. Now, what I'd like for you to do is to go back to your room and put it in your own words. And I think that's really a good way to deal with the problem of, uh, one way of dealing with the problem of plagiarism. Paul, would you like to get us started here? Yes, thank you, Roger, and thank you all for being here uh, and showing uh, interest in this uh, topic of uh, an ethics center, uh, many of the great universities of the world now have major ethics centers. The most impressive of these is at my alma mater, Oxford. Uh, and I have uh, given you a handout about that. Uh, the reason that uh, we've been talking about this at UT is not simply that we want to keep up with the Joneses which we do, of course, but that uh, we've, we're aware of a serious deficit on campus in the area of support for uh, research and teaching in practical ethics. Uh, we have no uh, tenured faculty in bioethics, zero. Uh, we have some good people teaching, but we have no tenured faculty, no tenured lines in that area. Uh, there's not much support for ethics uh, of a practical nature in any of the colleges, uh, even in liberal arts. Uh, this may surprise you, but in, in my department where, of course, ethics is uh, a subject, we teach the history of ethics and we teach something called meta-ethics, which is about the nature of ethical theory. Did you What's that? We have the Anne Ranch chair. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hold the Daryl K. Royal chair in ethics, I want you to know. <laughs> there's, there's an ethical example for you. <laughs> Take that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, and we do have a number of people who, who like me, uh, write a little bit and teach uh, practical ethics. But uh, we, we don't have... Uh, uh, 
we, the, such courses as we teach in my department on, on medical ethics are generally taught by graduate students or adjuncts because we don't have professionals in the area. And this goes for business ethics as well. Uh, so uh, a, a group of us, about 40 faculty members from all over the university, the LBJ School, communication, business, uh, liberal arts, uh, and so on, uh, were gathering to talk about ethics and health. And out of those conversations, a, a strong interest in developing a, a formal ethics center uh, bubbled up to the surface. And there seemed to be a consensus that I should be leading the charge, which I was a little reluctant to do. Uh, but here, here I am. Uh, we have uh, uh, established something we're calling the <coughs> Ethics Project, which is not a center. It's just a bunch of us. Uh, in fact, the three of us here, uh, Steve and Robert and I, are, are among the, those who are on the steering committee for this. Uh, which will sponsor discussions on, on ethical issues, but mostly our goal is to try to uh, create awareness of the, the need that we feel we have for an ethics center in the hope that we can uh, draw the lightning strike of a major donor. Uh, because uh, the ethics centers that we're looking at, that we are comparing to what our dreams are, are endowed in the 20 to $50 million range. <clears throat> and they mostly are the result of lightning strikes. Uh, that is, nobody went out and said, we need an ethics center to some uh, billionaire with a bad conscience. Uh, and uh, the billionaire with a bad conscience said, here, buy $50 million, go off and spend it on ethics. Uh, it, it, wouldn't, it didn't work that way. In fact, uh, what happened is that uh, people with resources and an interest in ethics, and in some cases, bad consciences, came to the universities and said, we, we would like uh, to start something along these lines. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the center at Princeton, which is one of our models, uh, called the, the Center for Human Value, was funded by Lawrence Rockefeller, who came to the university and said, I'd like to start a center for uh, parapsychology. And the university said, no, we don't do that. <laughs> and there were further discussions. And it, uh, he had already given quite a lot of money to the philosophy department. But he was disappointed that the philosophy department uh, didn't do anything practical. And so he funded this, uh, this center, which does. The, uh, as I said at the beginning, the most impressive center uh, that I have uh, looked at uh, on the web is the Uehiro Center for Practical Ethics at Oxford. Uh, it's, I have a handout in front of you. Uh, notice certain things about it. Uh, first of all, they are uh, in their mission explicitly not a missionary, but a Socratic uh, operation. That is, uh, they're not trying to convert people to behave more ethically. Uh, and that's not what the center that I have in mind would be doing either. Uh, it's not a missionary center. It's a center for asking questions, uh, you know, fostering research, uh, improving uh, the teaching uh, of ethics uh, across the curriculum, uh, but especially 
developing ethics in, in, in some professional areas, and I'll, I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, this center has uh, five uh, faculty members, all uh, publishing scholars who publish extensively in ethics, uh, who are directors of various uh, sorts of the, of the program. Uh, it has 22 research fellows who are also publishing scholars. Uh, this is an enormous number. Uh, it, is, it is astounding. Uh, and according to my uh, contacts at Oxford, this has overwhelmed the philosophy scene at Oxford. And the people who don't do practical ethics uh, are feeling a bit uh, swamped by the rising tide of those who do. Uh, so uh, th this is uh, something that I, I would actually like to see here, though I don't want it to swamp other efforts in philosophy, but I think it could, could make a, a profound difference. Obviously, this is very well funded. I don't know what the endowment is. They don't advertise it on the web. But to support an effort of this kind, it must be uh, humongous. Uh, this is the sort of thing uh, I, I would be thinking of. That is, I would like to see us with a center that could uh, either endow or uh, cause to be endowed uh, chairs or professorships in medical ethics, business ethics, bioethics, environmental ethics, uh, just war theory, and so on. There's a, a, a long list of areas in which we might be able to interest uh, specialized donors uh, to, to establish chairs, or if we're able to attract uh, the lightning strike, then uh, uh, we could use the funds uh, to establish chairs in various different departments. It's important that the center not be owned by uh, one college here uh, at, at UT uh, because the, uh, the, the need for the center and the interest in the center spreads across the campus. Uh, right now, I'm aware of the most interest in practical ethics in, this, in, the, in the Moody College of Communication, actually. There's a very substantial business in the business school. Thank you. Robert. Uh, there is a little bit in liberal arts, uh, and, uh, and there's some in the LBJ school. Uh, there's, uh, th there's hardly an, well, uh, pharmacy, nursing, of course, are very much interested for obvious reasons. Uh, we haven't attracted much interest from the Dell School, uh, although uh, there are a few people in the Dell School who are interested, but the management is not, as far as we can tell, uh, but they ought to be. And uh, if we have the funds, we can, we can help them. I think one reason why they're not interested in bioethics in the Dell School right now is that their funding model is that all of their faculty are clinical and support themselves through clinical practice. Uh, and people who do bioethics do not have a clinical practice and don't bring in any money. Uh, so un until their funding model changes, uh, there's a problem there. There's also, uh, I, I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, there's also the problem that the ethics that the Dell School is required to teach by uh, the Seton medical enterprise is guided by the Catholic directives. Uh, and uh, th they are required 
to introduce their doctors to that because that's what their student doctors have to, those are the rules they have to follow uh, in, uh, at, at Seton. Uh, and we would, of course, would like to have a, a broader view in which uh, different questions, questions can be asked that can't be asked in the context of those directives. Uh, the, uh, one of the things that I especially like about the Yuhiro uh, Center, in addition to its size and influence, is uh, the degree that they offer uh, Master of Studies in Practical Ethics. Uh, I, uh, I would like to know more about the, the nuts and bolts of how this works. But this is, strikes me as being something rather like uh, the uh, executive MBA or the HDO program for mid-level managers. This is a program for people who are in the professional world uh, who can study part-time to get a master's degree in ethics. Uh, they, uh, they take these six uh, modules, uh, which seem to me pretty well chosen, uh, and then they write a dissertation and then they get the degree. Uh, what I think this means uh, is something like this. Uh, setting this aside, uh, I have been uh, fortunate enough to be the, the, among those who taught a number of uh, military officers uh, in MA or PhD, our MA or PhD program in philosophy, uh, who were going to go on and teach ethics. The, the man who started the ethics program at West Point, Tony Hartle, and, and wrote the textbook that I think they're still using there, was one of our PhD students. Uh, I've had students who taught at the Air Force Academy, the Naval Academy, uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, what I like about these people is, because they all have combat experience, they have credibility on ethical issues that uh, most of us would not have. Uh, you know, we're just intellectuals who live in an ivory tower. What do we know about the ethical decisions you have to make in a combat situation? Uh, but uh, the people I am talking about have been in serious combat. Uh, they have degrees in philosophy, and they speak with credibility about the hard choices uh, that their students will have to make when they're in the field. Uh, I have been wanting for a long time to see if we could uh, expand this model. Uh, there was for a few years a program at the University of uh, Oregon, uh, rather like what I'd like to, to be doing, that would uh, recruit, uh, say, doctors and lawyers and uh, professionals uh, in, from the business world, uh, professionals from any profession you can think of, uh, and offer them a program like this, which would give them credentials in uh, ethics in addition to their professional experience. They then would be able to use their, their education that we had given them uh, match that with their professional credibility and make a difference in the practical world. So that, this is uh, one of my dreams, is to be able to do something like that if uh, we ever reach that point. So that's the basic introduction to the history of our interest in the medical, in the <coughs> ethics center, 
and what it would look like. Now I think we'll just go across, uh, Steve and then Robert, and speak about this. Okay. Well, some of you uh, may actually know uh, the person I sat next to at dinner last night, Lloyd Lockridge, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, legal uh, icon in Austin. He's uh, uh, just celebrated his 100th birthday. He's quite impressive. He's quite impressive. And uh, he uh, said to me, uh, well, I, I'm a medical doctor, I should say, and he said to me, uh, someone said, well, what do you teach at UT? And I said, I teach uh, medical humanities and medical ethics to undergraduates. So Lloyd said, um, well, can you define uh, or describe what medical ethics is? <coughs> And I said that uh, medical ethics was the way a doctor was supposed to think every minute of the day. And that, um, and, and, it, and it is an example of practical ethics because there's nothing you do in medicine, believe me, the, what you might think of as the simplest of things like giving, um, a tetanus shot to a child, um, which is just about as routine in this country as anything there is, but, but there are ethical implications there because a certain number of children are going to have very bad reactions to that. And rarely, very, very rarely, but some child might die. And when you give the shot or when you ask your, your uh, uh, assistant, perhaps a nurse, perhaps a technician to give the shot, you, you better be thinking about that. You don't have to obsess about it, you don't have to never give a tetanus shot, but you better know that you're, you've made an ethical decision and why you have. And one of the problems that we're facing today in, in uh, healthcare education is that there's so much technical material to master that the art of medicine, which <coughs> one could even say was a branch of practical ethics, one, one could make that argument, is, um, is being lost. Um, and uh, there, there's just so much to learn and so much to teach. Um, now, I, I had the good fortune of of uh, becoming a, a doctor uh, more than a uh, half century ago. I graduated from medical school in 1965 and there wasn't so much science to learn. And um, I was also taught by many, uh, many, uh, and mentored by many people who had been educated in Europe and really came to the United States because of the Holocaust. And, um, um, what I was taught was that my most important skill was to be able to listen well and think well and, uh, and not make uh, fast decisions and certainly not use much technology because we didn't have it. Um, the reason I, at this point in my life, the reason I'm not retired and teach full time here at the university is that I think by the time students get into medical school, uh, it's too late uh, to really teach them ethics. 
Um, and um, I get them as freshmen in a large signature course, which, which is really, a, it has an ethics flag, and it really is a medical ethics and medical humanities course. Um, and probably that's maybe bordering on the edge of being too late as well, but it, because they've already um, fought their way through the education system to get into this university, and I think they've already perhaps lost perspective in certain ways about what learning is about, that it's not getting a high score on an AP test, that it's about learning to think. But in any event, um, I'll just say one more thing about Dell, because um, because of the Catholic directives, for a long time, I did not choose to have a faculty appointment there. Um, and I'll say, I, I, here, I, most of my teaching is in the School of Undergraduate Studies in Plan 2 uh, in, and um, um, the Human Dimensions of Organizations program. But um, I got to know the dean. Um, and and that, was, that was hard to get to know because like everybody else at Dell, uh, everybody's doing too much. And, uh, but I got to know the dean, and he's a really exceptional person. And I might add, a person who really cares about ethics. Um, and um, I, um, I changed my mind, and I took uh, a faculty appointment there. I, I didn't take it in psychiatry, which is my specialty. I took it in population health and medical education. Um, and I, I didn't really want to be affiliated with uh, a clinical department. I wanted to be affiliated more with uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, population health would argue that it's clinical. Um, I certainly never would have signed a contract with Seton, as many of the faculty members have, um, because they are bound to follow the, the directives. And, and I do want to say, it's not that I disrespect people who choose to follow those directives. I mean, I, that's, that's fine. But um, I, I don't think imposing those directives on other people, particularly during medical education, is acceptable. But I have learned to compromise, and I just want to say that from a practical point of view, and Paul and I and Bill Sage were on a, a panel at uh, the McCombs Healthcare Initiative uh, a year or so ago, and, and I think the theme of what I had to say was compromise, compromise, compromise. I mean, healthcare is incredibly complicated, and you're constantly balancing pros and cons with everything you do. To me, that means you have to you have to constantly think ethically. And you have to be willing to make the best choice among choices, none of which are perfect. And I decided, um, once I was solidly established here as an, uh, at the uh, undergraduate level, that I could uh, stick my nose into things at Dell and maybe make a difference. And I think I'm starting to. But it's very, very difficult in an organization like that to really create um, an, an, an ethical culture. Hello there. Uh, yeah, so I apologize for not knowing any, anything about our subject here today. <laughs> I admitted to Roger as much. Really don't know anything about ethics centers. I have ethics center envy. I would love to have one, but I've never been with one or worked with one. But I do think that they could play 
uh, a wonderful role on our <coughs> campus. When you think about what a university does, it seems to me that a university does three major things. One, we produce knowledge. Two, we disseminate that knowledge. And three, we stand as a symbol of the value of knowledge. We stand as a symbol uh, uh, for uh, darkness over light and knowledge over ignorance and science over dogma. And I think that an ethics center placed on a university can, in the ethics realm of trying to make the world a better place and people better people, uh, can serve all three of those roles. I think if we had an ethics center that was well-funded, we could create research, we could create knowledge of a form that would be incredibly valuable. Uh, in my little area of interest, which is behavioral ethics, um, I think there's some really significant research being done and really interesting questions being asked. For the last 15 years or so, people in behavioral psychology and evolutionary biology and cognitive science and a whole number of uh, disciplines which study the brain and how people make decisions have focused on how people make the decisions, ethical and unethical, that they do. And from that information, we can learn, I think, how we can improve people's decision-making, in part by changing the structures of organizations that we're in, in ways that'll make it easier for people to act ethically, rather than harder for people to act ethically. We can nudge them in the right direction. That in itself opens up a whole new field of how ethical is it to nudge people to act ethically, <laughs> which is something I find endlessly fascinating. Um, so that's, it's just an exploding area, an area that I think the possibilities are unlimited. And if we could fund some research in that area, I think it would be great. And then if we could disseminate that information, I think that would be uh, uh, wonderful as well. If I can put in just a small plug, over in the business school, we have a project called Ethics Unwrapped, which is a video <coughs> ethics uh, program. We also have case studies and, and uh, all sorts of other things going on, but it's primarily a, a, a video project. We've got more than 100 videos that we have placed on our website, ethicsunwrap.utexas.edu, also available uh, through uh, YouTube for anybody in the entire world to use to teach these behavioral ethics concepts. Primarily, that's what our videos are, are about. And they've been used all across the world. More than 1,000 colleges and universities use them. All the top 20 research universities in the United States use them, et cetera. And that's how, if we had the support of, a, of a, an ethics center, we could do an even better job of pushing that out across uh, the globe and across our campus. And we've got lots of ethics initiatives, lots of which have been started by Paul Woodruff and uh, people in the undergraduate college. And uh, we've got the, the ethics flag all across uh, the university. And uh, so we can take this knowledge that we create and push it across the university, across the world. Never a bad day to talk about it when the Texas Tribune announces former University of Texas law school official arrested as part of ongoing fraud investigation. That was today. Oh, who is that? <laughs> Uh, this is Jason Shoemaker, the law school's former facilities director, was arrested Thursday. The alleged fraud could involve several million dollars of questionable expenses. It turns out he was supposed to be working here, but was in Las Vegas and Mexico and all sorts of other places running up credit card bills. I will tell you, I give lots and lots of ethics talks, and there's virtually never a day when I can't pull something off the newspaper. <laughs> about, Look what's in the headlines today. We need to be talking about ethics. Um, as I said, uh, what universities do is create knowledge and disseminate knowledge and then stand as a symbol. And I think that, to get back to DKR, Texas Memorial Stadium, what you build in a university signals what you think is important. And obviously, we think football is important. And I have no problem with that, because I love football. 
But I also think it would be a great idea if we had an ethics center that would send a signal that that's also extraordinarily important to the University of Texas. Yeah, you know, I want to add something. That, uh, I, I, in a way, I got distracted uh, when Paul was making those comments about the med school, though I had intended to say something about it, but I sort of didn't get to the punchline. I think one of the reasons we need an ethics center is that actually, in spite of, of the Seton problem, and, and it is, it's, it's a very, very real problem, in spite of that, I think this medical school has a chance to be very innovative. And um, I know, for example, that the dean uh, spent his undergraduate years studying art history and after medical school went to Florence to uh, study art and architecture. And uh, in a story somewhat familiar to my generation and his family pressure, resulted in uh, becoming a, a medical doctor. <laughs> D David knows my story, so. Uh, uh, now let me just say, I think if we had an ethics center, it would, affect the it would affect the medical school. The medical school, in turn, would affect what was going on at the ethics center. There would really be a feedback loop. We would have a chance to influence healthcare ethics. Uh, in a unique way. That's not the only reason we should have an ethics center, but that's one reason we should. Let me mention something else. Uh, you know, people have been asking me what sorts of uh, ethical issues, uh, practical issues, that I'm interested in. And I, I, I'm impressed to hear Steve say that everything a doctor does as a doctor involves ethics. Uh, I want to say, an, uh, point to an analogy there. I think everything a teacher does as a teacher involves ethics, because we're dealing with human beings. Uh, we're, we're giving them assignments which may in, contain incentives uh, for academic dishonesty. We may be nudging them in bad directions. Uh, we can also nudge them in good directions. We don't think about that. Every time a teacher as an authority figure interacts with a student, that teacher is setting an example of how a person in authority should treat another. Uh, we have, uh, you know, so I've, I've coined this motto, every teacher teaches ethics. Uh, whether, whether you know it or not, when you teach, you are teaching uh, ethics along with uh, neuroscience or mechanical engineering or bridge building or, or Greek or whatever it is you teach. You're teaching ethics as well. And I think it's important that uh, we be aware of this. And I, I have a, would be interested in uh, developing some kind of focus through a center like this on ethics in education, meaning the ethics of teaching. And there I find a number of faculty members who are interested in that uh, around the campus. I would just like to add that I hope that there will be a historical dimension to all of this. Uh, <laughs> To, to mention only one of my interests, uh, Nazi genetics, uh, for example, that had a parallel in American uh, thought in, and practice in the 1930s and on up through the 1950s. And so these sort of things, I think, are very important for the historical uh, background uh, for all of this. And I think that it's you know very important to build that into the program to the center. Similar things were going on in the United States during that same period. No, that's what I mean. 
Yeah. It isn't just Nazi. Or no, 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 no. It's, it's in American Nazi. Trends in America as well. Nazis, yeah. Another interesting aspect of this legal questions, during Watergate, I was struck by how many lawyers were involved in very questionable behavior. And so I went to the law school and I looked at the, college, the law school catalogs of all the law schools in the country and no one was teaching legal ethics. Mm -hmm. No law school in the United States, at least they never listed a legal ethics course in their catalog. Now that has changed now. It's changed a little. Uh, Julius Glickman, who's a lawyer and a graduate of this school, gave a, either a professorship or a chair to the law school in legal ethics. Uh, and I don't believe it has been filled with a person in that area. When did he give it? Oh, 20 years ago or so. And it's taken them 20 years not to find yeah. somebody. Yeah. Right. And the, the, I don't mean to bash my colleagues too much, but uh, the law school, yeah, but I do mean to bash them, darn it. Uh, the, the law school had uh, an expert on bioethics, John Robertson, whom some of you may have known, who was, uh, his specialty was, was medical law and bioethics. And he was actually uh, one of the leading pioneers in publishing in the field of bioethics. Uh, he died last year, and there is no plan to replace him. And, and, the, the re and actually, the, the, the reason for this is important for this whole discussion. Uh, hiring a person in that field will not advance the rank of the law school. And in general, uh, hiring people in practical ethics in any field uh, does not uh, affect positively the rank of a department. Uh, by hiring top people in meta-ethics, we shoot up. Hiring people in practical ethics, you know, Nothing. Either we stay the same or drop. I hope we can get Jamie Galbraith to comment on how this might play out in the LBJ school. But in the meantime, Sam, Sam Baker. Hey, uh, I found that a really extraordinarily compelling uh, presentation. And I have a question, two questions with a few points of information thrown in. And the first question is, uh, I might have missed this at the beginning, but I'm really curious to hear so where you're at in your discussions of this project, or your, your convincing the president, the provost, or your Dutchess development, the where, where you're at in the process. And then in particular, I'm curious about um, uh, if you've explored any relations between this project and the initiatives of the themes in the Bridging Barriers Initiative. Now, I've been working one of those themes, uh, which is called Good Systems, which is, you know, right now in development still. Um, but it, it has some really um, exciting um, <coughs> energy around technologists who are looking for uh, technology on these discussions, <coughs> in particular the whole application research <coughs> where they're working on autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. They're extraordinarily keen <coughs> to find ethically minded people around campus to work with on those problems. Uh, the people at AI, computer science, is another locus for this. Um, but 10 years ago on the campus, I've, I've learned there was a center for technology and society. And it was disbanded in the post-2008 budget cuts. Right? 
So the whole uh, problem of ethics and technology on campus was something that was recognized, right? And bioethics certainly be, would be a part yeah. of this. Then was decertified, if you will, by the university, which creates an opportunity uh, there, uh, I think, to, to rebuild as well. So really a question about where you're at and all of okay. this, and with particular uh, reference to technology. Okay, there, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, no, I'll launch into this. We actually do have uh, some centers. There's uh, the new Center for Leadership and Ethics in the Macomb School. We don't know exactly where that's going to head. Uh, in uh, communication, uh, there's, a, I think it's an institute uh, for uh, media ethics, which is doing some interesting work involving technology. Where are we? About four years ago, the Ethics and Health Working Group uh, decided that it wanted to move forward towards an ethics center uh, and instructed me and other uh, people who were leading the charge uh, to speak with the provost. Well, at the time, there was no provost. So we had to wait for the provost to be appointed. When the provost was appointed, I wrote and said, may I meet to talk about this important interdisciplinary endeavor? Uh, well, two years passed. Uh, this is a provost who doesn't meet with faculty members, as far as I can tell. Uh, but eventually, uh, she said, the person you should meet with, we have not yet appointed. That's going to be the, uh, the senior vice provost and dean of graduate studies. And I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. This is, I think, a, a, a good home for the center would be uh, the, the office of graduate studies. And uh, when he came on board uh, last fall, we indeed met with him, the committee met with him, and had a very positive discussion, and he's very supportive. Uh, so that's where we are with the administration. Uh, I am in touch with uh, Central Development. Uh, I uh, have got a small grant. I have a donor who's very interested in this and has given us a grant to sponsor a conference on designing an ethics center and may give us more. I mean, I, he certainly has the capacity to give us more, depending on, on what happens. Uh, with this grant, uh, we are scheduling a conference on November 1st, uh, 2nd and 3rd. Uh, so far, we've got the keynote speaker. It's all being built around the keynote <coughs> speaker. Uh, the keynote speaker is a celebrity ethicist, Anthony Appiah. He'll be here November 1st. Uh, and we'll be, uh, we've booked the Lady Bird Johnson Auditorium for this event, and we plan to fill it. Yes, I think so. He's written a really good book called The Code of Honor. He's interested in how uh, ethical uh, codes change as culture changes. Uh, he's a very interesting man and, and well regarded in the, in the philosophy community as well as a celebrity. Uh, I can't talk to him directly. I have to talk to him through an agent. Yours or his? His. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but in any case, uh, the point of this is to get as much publicity through his visit as we possibly can uh, in Austin and Texas uh, to call people's attention to the possibility of an ethics center. And we'll be bringing other uh, valuable people, but less famous, I haven't lined them up yet, uh, that weekend to talk about the design of an ethics center. And the point is going to be to try to address the question, what should 
an ethics center at UT <coughs> be? You know, do we want the Oxford model? Do we want the, uh, the model of the Parr Center in North Carolina? Do we want the Safra Center in Harvard? Uh, or do, do, what is the unique Texas center that we should be uh, developing? Uh, so that's where we are with that. We have uh, also some possibilities of getting uh, operating funds from a local foundation. Uh, I don't know how, how certain that is, but if, if, if I could get, uh, say, $100,000 a year, uh, I could hire a permanent staff member uh, and have some money perhaps left over for events. Uh, that would make a huge difference to getting it momentum. Uh, to, for the project, you know, the project is to lay the foundation for a center. Uh, that's basically it. So that's where we are. Jamie Galbraith? Yeah, well, as someone who was for one semester a fine arts major, it strikes me as passing strange that a university which has fine arts majors as one major dean and provost can't wrap its mind around the need <laughs> to keep a proper finance arts library. <laughs> <laughs> On the LBJ School, uh, you may have heard of, it's the School of Public Affairs, uh, if you don't know it, it's, uh, you may have heard of the Swamp, that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as the subject came up, the, the phrase I jotted in my notebook was, white-collar criminology should be part of uh, a uh, ethical research program. We did have uh, a uh, faculty member for a number of years uh, who specialized in that. Uh, his name was William K. Black. Uh, he was the whistleblower on the Keeping Five uh, and uh, the person who figured out what the savings of the criminal, the, the criminal uh, underpinnings of what became the savings of loan crisis. For which nobody went to. No, on the contrary. Uh, Bill, this was a different era the era of Bush Sr. and the late Reagan period. Uh, and uh, in those days, uh, they did have actual an actual Department of Justice, um, <laughs> admittedly under Republicans. Uh, and a 1,000 uh, officers of the uh, criminal SNLs were indicted, convicted, and imprisoned in federal prisons, the largest uh, uh, criminal cleanup uh, <coughs> in the financial sector in history. It was a contrast to the more recent period when the number of Senior bankers uh, charged and imprisoned in the financial debacle was approximately zero, including <laughs> bankers who uh, were involved in the laundering of hundreds of millions of dollars of Mexican drug cartel money. Um, so, any event, uh, I just put that on the table as something which ought to be part of uh, an agenda and. Uh, but with the warning that to do this seriously requires a great deal of courage because uh, uh, there's a lot of money flowing in the other direction. Can I ask, ask you if you think that, that one of the bullet points uh, might be, uh, and I'm thinking about de Tocqueville and all that, but the ethics of democracy? Yes, well, I think uh, there's a question uh, that is raised by the information <coughs> society, the, uh, the, the, the digital information society, which is uh, about the, the nature of and the search for truth and the discussion of, of public affairs. This is an issue which, where, where we see uh, the, the traditional business of muddying the waters has become um, uh, you know, 
sort of combinatorial. Uh, it's that much harder to work your way through to something that you can positively believe in in a whole range of historical and political questions. And yeah, sure, I think there's a big ethical element to that. Oh, yeah. Yes, is ethics a required course for freshmen here at UT? Say, say again? Is ethics a required course for freshmen here at UT? Uh, no, but what is required uh, is that every student take a course with a substantial ethics component, oh, okay. which we call the ethics flag. Okay. Uh, and uh, we also try to teach uh, in the signature course, I, I hope we do it in most of the, which is a freshman course, mm -hmm. required freshman course, uh, the uh, uh, academic ethics of, of, of proper citation, you know, and uh, attribution, and generally the virtues of academic honesty are, uh, I hope, uh, being uh, reinforced through the signature course. That's one of its goals. Uh, yes, over here. And we haven't heard from George Christian. Go ahead. So thank you all for opening this question here. I'm very, very interested in this, and I'm glad that other people are too. Um, so I'm visiting from Berkeley, which has a bit of a bias on it, um, and that's towards bioethics, where Doudna just came up with CRISPR and so forth, and um, we've got Silicon Valley right there, so it's very much so algorithmic ethics, um, computing, and so forth. But I don't necessarily think these biases are bad <laughs> in this particular era, um, especially given some of the things that we've been finding. And I wanted to share some of the conversation with you and, and just to see if these are on your radar at all, uh, because it seems like we're all on the same crusade. One thing that we're particularly finding, um, and I'd love your perspective on, is that many of the, the ethical decisions that are coming out or being decided right now are being done by people who don't have college degrees anymore. Um, some of the people that we're thinking about and that we've been uh, negotiating with and investigating um, are coming out with high school degrees and making six figures and going into Silicon Valley um, right away. This makes two various areas um, that, that we've identified that we're sort of scrambling to keep up with. The first is teaching ethics, and I think your comment is so incredibly important the ethics of teaching and thinking about where this teaching happens, especially at high schools, of which there are rules about teaching ethics in most of the states here in the United States, in STEM and so forth, but very few support mechanisms to do so. Uh, and the second is being a resource for people who are policy writers um, in the expertise of both ethics and STEM, especially the STEM and industry that's happening right now. Uh, I was, especially as I came here because you know, UT is uh, you know, nationwide known for its UTeach program, its STEM instruction, and honestly <coughs> starting up one of the, the only programs that disseminates ethical and social thought in STEM teaching. Um, have these been on your radar? Have you, um, have, I'm just curious about your, your thoughts on that because I can use some feedback too. Oh. Well, one of the centers that we're looking at as a model, the Parr Center in North Carolina, has a high school outreach program, which is very interesting. Uh, and that, that's something we might do. If we developed uh, a, uh, uh, a wing of the ethics center that focused on ethics in education, uh, I would hope that we would be talking about K through 20, you know, 
all, all education at all levels. Carl Smith. I have a series of questions I think are somewhat related. <coughs> Let me go through them and then respond. First of all, in a center like this, dealing with ethics, what is the ground of your ethics? Where do you start from? And do you see a difference between morals and ethics? Aren't ethical questions by their nature matters of value and therefore controversial? I heard you, Professor Woodruff, say that you did not want the center to be a missionary enterprise, but then you would not associate with Seton. You made a decision there that you would not, you don't want to accept their position on ethics and morals. Would you respond? Uh, well, first, uh, the, the the last question. Uh, yes, the the mission is more Socratic, is, is Socratic rather than missionary. Uh, that is. Uh, the, the Socratic mission uh, is prepared to ask questions about anything. And the problem with Seton is they're questions you can't ask. Uh, so that's, that's the problem with them. Uh, they're, they're, the, uh, you ask about the grounds of ethics. Uh, that's a verges on being a meta-ethical meta question. Uh, <laughs> And something that is, is, is much debated. There is a debate uh, among practical ethics people as to the relevance of ethical theory to ethical decision making. And I think there's a, a growing interest in what Robert was talking about, uh, uh, ethical decision making, what, what, what's involved in making an ethical decision uh, in, a, in, a practical, in a practical way, uh, rather than uh, the... Uh, more heavily theoretical interest in uh, what grounds ethics. Uh, then you asked about whether, uh, about values. Are values controversial? Uh, some are, obviously, because there's, a, there's some controversy about the values behind the, uh, the, the Catholic directives. Uh, but there is a, I think in ethics, a, a, a remarkable consensus on, on most issues. I think the, the, the problems that, that we in uh, practical ethics are most interested in uh, have to do with the, the, the conditions under which people make good or bad ethical decisions by their own lights. I mean, it's, uh, that, that's, a, that's a long, long story, but uh, we, we do know how easily it is, how easy it is uh, to be uh, deterred by uh, temptation or, or fear or anger, uh, somehow uh, led astray from what one's value commitments really are. Uh, and if you, if you look at Ethics Unwrapped, I think they're really elegant videos uh, that deal with issues like this. Uh, that, you know, it's, we don't really need to have a, a, a discussion about whether it's good or bad to lie. Generally, we agree it's bad to lie, and we agree on why. Uh, but the interesting thing is to look at the circumstances in which we, we lie, because we do lie a lot. Uh, you know, and, but you wouldn't argue it's bad under all circumstances. Uh, well, that's, that's something we, we could discuss, yes. Exactly. <laughs> and 
that's something we do discuss, yeah. <laughs> uh, Walter and then George Christian, and I want to mention that we have a couple of Arabists here. I would be very much interested in how this appears from an Arabist perspective, Ashley and Kat. Uh, let's see, Albert, uh, uh, Walter. <laughs> And yet your mission statement says that you're not missionary. And it would seem that ethics <coughs> in politics, if that's not actually an oxymoron, would be something that we could work on applying. So why is missionary not in your goals? Well, this is the, the Oxford Center. Uh, and I'm, I, I, I like that statement. Um, that since we don't have a center yet, we don't have a statement as to what its goal is. Uh, but I think it would be unsuitable for a university uh, to, to decide in advance uh, what ethical values it was going to promote and, and set out as a missionary uh, along those lines. If we were uh, a, a Catholic university, that would be different, but we're not. Uh, we're a university that should be open to inquiry. And the Socratic method is all about asking questions and helping people uncover what their deepest value commitments are. Uh, and then uh, I think the kind of behavioral ethics that Bob was talking about have to do with uh, uh, figuring out how to, how to live by the values that we find we have. Uh, George Christian and then, yeah. Well, as, uh, as somebody who has to carry professional liability insurance against my own unethical behaviors, I'm a lawyer and have to actually have to insure myself um, in that regard. Um, and I do, like you, think about everything I do in terms of, of ethics because, you know, when you're under a professional code, it's enforceable that way. I mean, you do have to worry about it. I'm curious if part of this could not... I often wonder why university faculty, like, have never really gotten formal ethics training other than these little kind of online modules that we have to take every so often. Yeah, that's right. about the rules, and, and I, you know, I only get the emails when, of course, I'm overdue with my life. But um, could part of this be a really form, more formalized like ethics training, which faculty would have to yeah. actually get together and do? Because um, I'm confronted with student problems that, frankly, you know, are changing in nature, um, given the increasing precarity of our society. And I'm not sure I am totally trained to talk to some of these, these kids about it. And how much, how much can an ethics center do versus, you know, just a more concentrated focus on dealing with sort of mental health and developmental issues um, that come to purpose, particularly if we teach in plan two or, you know, a lot of undergraduate students who really are having 
There's a brand new chief compliance officer at UT, and he, I believe, is aware of the inadequacy of the online uh, little education. So he's putting a lot of thought into how we could improve that. I've had some conversations with him. Uh, he might use some of our ethics unwrap videos, but he is aware of the inadequacy. And uh, uh, bless you for bringing that up, because that's something that UT's way behind the curve on that. Steve, could you respond to the medical dimension of the question? Um, well, I, I think I, I think you've responded already. Uh, you, you, no, I do because what you said was that uh, that you every every decision you make involves thinking about ethics, um, and um, and I think that's what we need to train ourselves to do. You know, actually, um, uh, I, I just finished teaching a, a capstone course for a group of uh, human dimensions of organization students, and I want to mention something that one of the groups came up with. They actually um, uh, were, uh, had a field placement working with the Merck uh, organization that just came to Austin. And Merck asked them to advise them on how they could become involved in the community. Now, this goes back to uh, Silicon Valley and Berkeley. And, I, I, you know, they came up with an idea because Merck was very interested in developing a training program for young women in STEM, uh, uh, maybe a high school-based program, outside of classes, um, extracurricular program. And uh, this group of three women um, said, well, what we should do is change STEM to STEAM. You've heard that, I'm sure. You haven't. I wasn't sure. I thought maybe they invented it. The A stands for the arts. So, it's, so we rejoined science, technology, engineering, the arts, and uh, uh, mathematics. And uh, I, I, um, I really believe that uh, what we need to do is really train people to keep STEAM in mind and not separate STEM from the A. Um, I think that's what we're trying to do in Plan 2. I think really, under Paul's leadership for a very long time and some other people, that's what we're trying to do here at UT. Changing the core curriculum, I think, reflected really trying to create STEAM. Uh, so um, I think you answered your own, uh, you, you answered the question, you have to keep thinking. I said before that one of the things I learned from these wonderful European scholars in medical school was to listen. I think you have to learn to talk with yourself and be very, very self-reflective and, 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 and very introspective um, and, and really take time to stay in touch with yourself and the way you make decisions. Now I also think, by the way, that the decision-making uh, approach that, uh, that the um, Ethics Unwrapped uh, uh, project is designing is superb. I'm not saying we can't use technology and we can't use uh, good teaching to promote this, but I think the most important thing is creating a culture that really promotes a recognition of how complicated the world is and how we have to keep thinking about everything we do. So uh, maybe my 
three wonderful students invented something. I thought they must have gotten it off the net. It's in California. Yeah. So well, one, one brief word. Texas oh, okay. Okay. Following up on this. Oh. Yes, sir. And then Jimmy. Yes. The, the two, two of the greatest ethical thinkers in the Western tradition are Socrates and Immanuel Kant. Both of them said the cornerstone of ethics is self-knowledge. Which is why I don't like the word training. You know, there's compliance training and there's ethics education. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I've several times <coughs> heard the expression Catholic directives uh, applied to uh, uh, hospitals. I take that to be coded language meaning an anti-abortion, an anti-contraceptive position. Is there anything else to it, or is that the whole thing? Well, um, <coughs> um, the term Catholic directive is, um, is a term of art that was um, created by the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So it's not a, a, it's not a term of disapprobation. It's the term that's, a, that's used, as I understand it. And um, it uh, really has to do with women's health, yes. Medical context, okay, thank you. But also, you can't terminate a life. Uh, End of life issues. Uh, yeah. And there are a lot of other <coughs> issues, there, aren't there? <laughs> yes, there? Yes, there are, but I, I'm, I, from a practical point of view, uh, it has to do with well, women's health. Well, we're old. Well, well no, no, no. Let, well, no. Let, let, all right. No. Let, let me let me say from a practical point of view. When I say it has to do with women's health, I'm including the issue of termination of life, because while physician-assisted suicide is obviously something of an issue, uh, the issue of termination of life. Uh, uh, before um, uh, a human being uh, leaves its mother's body is also a women's health issue. And that, I think, is in terms of, just in terms of sheer impact, most of the impact has to do with women's health. There are other things about the Seton uh, uh, contract that doctors sign uh, that prevents them from thinking and acting with good conscience. There's also nondisclosure uh, in, in their contracts which means that they can't be shown to anybody, and there's also uh, a non-compete clause. Jamie, and then we'll collect a few concluding comments and questions. I wanted to follow up on George's point about codes of ethics, because there actually never has been one for economists. Uh, and, uh, with predictable consequences. But there, it, it's, as a point of information, there is an effort now spearheaded by a professor at Denver University named George DiMartino uh, to develop a code of ethics for economists. And needless to say, it raises a very important question about the role that economists play as consultants and advisors uh, in finance and business, uh, which, uh, needless to say, has meant that the profession has been exceedingly reticent to embrace the notion that it should have a code of and that also is something I think I suggest would be very usefully put on the agenda, again, at the risk of developing yet another core of determined opposition to the existence of the whole idea. An Arabist perspective. <coughs> Ashley. I was wondering about in terms of like funding and who is 
I don't know if cloud is the right word to invest in this center, especially if it deals with issues like terrorism or just war. You have like governmental interests here and then also wealthier nation states, kingdoms abroad that would be interested in this kind of research. So would there be any like blocks in place for that or would that be just taken into consideration when doing the Would there be any what in place? Like, uh, not blocks, but is there, would there be like disclosures or something if it's like terrorism and it's like, okay, this is funded by this, if it's research, this research is funded by the Department of Defense or et cetera. Uh, I don't know, one of the leading uh, practical ethics professors at Oxford uh, is uh, an expert on, on just war theory, has published, I think he's probably published more than anyone on that. And he's actually not listed as part of the center, but he's there because of the center. Uh, and I don't believe there are any obstacles to anything he says or writes. I don't see why there should be. It's an academic operation. I hope we, last we're free. Question. Well, I can certainly see the need for ethics training for teachers and lawyers and doctors and accountants a lot of other people because, uh, you know, um, they're getting sued all the time because <coughs> they did something inappropriate or whatever, unfair to people. So I, I could see a real need for ethics training in almost all the fields. You know. David Leola, concluding comment. Well, is there any research evidence that ethics classes make people more ethical? <laughs> <laughs> they should. <laughs> There's, there's, there's not a lot, but there is evidence that, uh, again, from the behavioral ethics research that is being done, there are things you can do that do improve the chances that people will do the right thing. And among those uh, happen to be people on the top doing the right thing, rewarding people who do the right thing, and punishing people who do the wrong thing. Reminding people, A, of the ethical standards of the profession and doing that on a regular basis, and reminding the people of the importance of their own moral identity and doing that on a regular basis. There are things that can not turn anybody, not turn people into a, a perfect people, but can give people a fighting chance to live up to their own standards on a more regular basis. But surely that's one of the enormous problems, that different people have very different ideas about what the right thing to exactly. do is. And so I may think I am complying with my own ethics, and you may think I'm an ethical disaster. Right. And so I'm this is, really you know, for the kinds of issues we're talking about, this point really is largely irrelevant, you know, for what Bob is, is dealing with. Yeah. Uh, what, what How you, could what, it be irrelevant? <laughs> yeah. When you, I mean, look, if, if, if Catholics or evangelicals or... I don't Jews know of a religion that, that encourages fraud. Well, but there I, are not lots of that. practical <laughs> cases, as Carl was suggesting earlier, where lying, for example, to save hundreds of, I mean, to save people you are <laughs> hiding from the Nazis, for example. I mean, there are, yeah. life is full of situations where people feel that there is a conflict between right. uh, one ethical principle and another. And well, moral I dilemmas are a really interesting subject about which a great deal has been done. And, of course, part of uh, ethical education, I think, is to help people uh, think through ethical dilemmas, but they're ethical dilemmas because uh, people feel the force uh, on both sides. So this is a huge subject, uh, but it, obviously it's one that we uh, you know, philosophers who deal in practical ethics have a lot to say about. In, in the business school, we're more concerned with 
the people you see in the paper every day who go to jail for fraud, who go to jail for insider trading, who go to jail for tax evasion, and on and on down the line. Every one of those people knows that's wrong. And yet every one of them did it. Virtually every one of them, when they're at their sentencing, will have people testify on their behalf saying they're a wonderful father, which they probably were, a wonderful parent, which they probably were, a wonderful neighbor, which they probably were, active in their church, where they probably were. Why did they do this bad thing even though they're good people? That's what the research that I'm interested in focuses on. How can we allow people to live up to their own standards. It is definitely true that on the edges we run into situations where we have disagreements as to what's the right thing to do, but I bet if you and I sat down and talked about things, 95% of the top ethical issues that would come up you and I would agree on, and the five that we didn't probably wouldn't happen very often. Would Donald Trump agree with us? <laughs> <laughs> We're calling on there Sam Baker for the, for the concluding <laughs> comment goes but to Sam Baker. But you and I would agree on Donald Trump. <laughs> The ethics of, of passing bribes through your lawyer to your uh, trial. Why did I get any of that? Because the growth <laughs> 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 diminution of just the very possibility of ethical discourse among uh, so many of the decision makers and actors in our society today, right? Um, and I'm, I've discovered this in, in a good way, working with technologists on campus, of people in STEM fields who uh, you know, were trained um, you know, in the era when you know, engineering departments really did require every last credit hour, um, and uh, you know, who haven't had undergraduate ethics training. So they try to write about the ethics of their fields, and they're pulling together you know, the most basic utilitarian arguments, right, in, in, in good faith. Um, and I think, well, that's an interesting start in an argument. And I recognize that it would be quite beyond my capacity to help them get to where they want to be, and we know where they're actually asking for help to get to, in terms of like the possibility for having discussions. So just to the, um, you know, to, for an answer to David's question, uh, just the idea that we could just do so much more as a university to foster uh, informed ethical discussions with high-level vocabularies than we do, and help keep people away from the, the recourse to the spheres of law and religion. It's like the only places in society, supposedly, where you can have ethical discourse, which in fact, they won't comment on religion, but certainly law is a place you know, that so often is adapted to ethical discourse. That's a very eloquent statement, Sam. Let's thank our panel for a very interesting afternoon. <laughs>